We're in the Gospel of, of Matthew. Thank you, brother, for the invitation to come and, and open up God's Word. I really appreciate it. I hope you will be encouraged tonight. Matthew 6. So we're in uh, what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up Matthew chapters uh, 5 through 7. And I understand the Sermon on the Mount to be King Jesus's kingdom manifesto. Matthew is presenting Jesus of Nazareth in his gospel as the Christ, the King of Israel, to his readers. And this is the first lengthy public communication from Jesus to his disciples as the King. And I believe he gathers them, he ascends up on the mountain, similar to how Moses, I think Matthew is sort of portraying Jesus as a new and greater Moses, the same way Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and you remember he received the law from God for Israel and gave them the commandments of God that they were to live by, Jesus ascends on this hill and he gives to his disciples, I believe the primary function is he's instructing his disciples about certain realities that are true of them, and certain ways that they are to conduct themselves, to live as his kingdom citizens here and now on the earth. And there's a lot at stake in this sermon, because when you come to the end of it, Jesus talks about entering through the narrow gate, and I think that's a call to enter on the final day when Christ comes back. And he says there's really two ways to live. The narrow road, built upon the words and teachings of Jesus Christ, and then the broad road, and I think the broad road in the Sermon on the Mount, I was talking with Rian about this earlier, is not focused upon living in immorality, drunkenness, sexual misconduct, but it's focused on the shallow, hypocritical, empty religion of the scribes and Pharisees at that time. That's why he says in chapter 5 and verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he lays out these two paths and he calls his Jewish hearers who would have been very familiar with the outward life and the religious zeal of the scribes and Pharisees and says, you can continue following their traditions and and their self-righteousness or you can build your life on my words. And Christ offers a real inner righteousness that far surpasses that of the religiosity of the scribes and Pharisees, one that only those who have been transformed by the grace of God in their hearts, who are partakers of the new covenant where Christ has put his spirit inside of you and written his law, the law of Christ, on your hearts. Only those can not only desire this life, but actually be empowered by God's grace to live it out. And when we come to chapter 6, look there at verse 1. Jesus begins this part of his sermon with a warning. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then, if you do that, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Christ warns his followers not to practice our righteousness in a way that seeks the praise of men, but instead to practice it in a way that seeks the approval of God. And then he goes on to talk about 
um, certain religious activities that he expects, he assumes, his disciples will engage in. First, he talks about giving, financial giving to poor, needy people around us. Then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. Now, I think it's providential. I'd spoken with Rian Pryor, and he said, you guys have been going, as I could see tonight, in the catechism through the Lord's Prayer. And I thought it might be timely and and helpful just to focus tonight on some of Jesus' instructions for us on prayer from the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to probably the first half of verse 9. It's interesting, Sinclair Ferguson has said that if you want to make someone feel really guilty, talk to them about prayer. As soon as I say that, some of you are smiling because you just you get that. Maybe you've experienced that, right? If I wanted to make you feel really bad tonight, I could just ask you one simple question. How's your prayer life? How's your private prayer life with God going? And immediately, right, we feel convicted. Because if we're honest, maybe some of us here, but it'd probably be a minority, could honestly say, actually, it's never been better. It's quite vibrant right now. I'm just so surprised. But most of us would say, yeah, you know, I just, I don't pray as much as I should. We just know that. Um, Or I don't pray how I should, or at least how I think I should. Maybe we can get some help in that area tonight. So I just want to say right from the outset, I don't think Jesus' words here, his instructions, are meant to be a stick that I'm going to pick up in my hand tonight and beat you down with guilt and shame for. Because I don't think that's why Jesus gives us these instructions. I think he gives us these words actually to encourage us, to energize us in prayer, that we might experience more confidence, more freedom with God as our Heavenly Father in prayer. That's the aim tonight. Jesus wants to instruct us about the character of God, about our relationship with him as his people, and that's going to impact then how we think about and approach personal private prayer. So this is meant to be an encouragement to energize us in our prayer lives. As we work through these verses, it'll be very clear to you that there is an obvious structure to Christ's words here. He begins by giving a negative example. He says, don't pray like this group of people. And then he's going to turn right around and say, but, and he'll give positive instruction. Contrary to them, pray this way. So negative example, positive instruction. He's going to do it twice. We'll have two rounds of that, okay? So first round, round one, how not to pray. Look at verse five. This is the first way Jesus tells us not to pray. He says there, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Do not pray like the hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? I think most of us know what a hypocrite is. But it's helpful just to to be reminded that the word that this comes from is the Greek word hypocrite. It was used at that time of a stage actor. So someone who would stand up in front of others during a drama and act out a part, they would come out on stage and they'd put a mask over their face. 
And so they played that role with the mask over their face. But as soon as they were done acting that part, they'd go off stage and put the mask away, and that's who they really were in real life. You can see the connection with how we use and understand the word nowadays. On stage, they put on a particular face, they played a particular part, a character. You'd say they were like that, this is who they are. But then off stage, they take the mask off, they may be a completely different person. You know, I think of the Italian actress uh, Monica Bellucci. Maybe some of you have heard of her. Um, maybe you don't, haven't heard of her, but you've watched The Passion of the Christ. It was directed by Mel Gibson. She played Mary Magdalene uh, in that film. So you might go, oh yeah, okay, well, I do maybe know who she is. I've seen her at least in one role. So in that film, Monica Bellucci plays Mary Magdalene, a woman of whom many demons was cast out. And she's this woman who's just weeping over her sins and a devoted follower of Jesus, following him all around. And that's who she is in the film in front of the camera. But when she's off camera, off the set, who is she in her real private life? She's a woman who's been married and divorced twice. She's living in sexual immorality. She's a so-called supermodel, strutting around half-naked for all the world to see. And at best, she says, when it comes to her beliefs about God, she's agnostic. What? Mary Magdalene? Agnostic? <laughs> Sexual immorality? I thought you were delivered from that. Oh, no, that was only in the film. Right? Hypocrite. She can be a completely different person when the camera's off in her private life. That's what a hypocrite is. How do hypocrites pray? Look there again at verse 5. Jesus go on, goes on to explain how the hypocrites pray. He says, For they, the hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. So the synagogues refer to the Jewish public places of worship. And the street corners refer to the busy marketplaces, the agoras there, uh, where the Gentiles would meet in public. So two very public, crowded, lots of people, places. Places of worship and places of business. Why is it that the hypocrites really like to pray in those two places? Look again, Jesus tells us. He says, that, so that, in order that, they may be seen by others. So they do this in the synagogues and in the marketplaces so that others would see them, so that they would see them praying. And it's interesting that Jesus says these people are hypocrites. And I say it's interesting because he doesn't come out and explicitly tell us where their hypocrisy lies. He just says they're hypocrites and they like to play, pray in these places. So we kind of have to do some, some thinking. Why does he call them hypocrites? And I think as, as we give it more thought, what becomes clear is the hypocrisy lies here. They give the public impression that they're really all about God in their prayers. Maybe they pray long prayers. Maybe they use big words in their prayers. Maybe they quote the Hebrew scriptures in their prayers. And they give off this picture that they're praying for God to hear, that they're concerned with pleasing God. They're concerned with hallowing God's name. They're concerned with God being glorified. They give off that impression. 
But Jesus says, in reality, in their hearts, they actually want others not to see how great God is, but to see how great they are, or how great they think they are for praying the way they do. They're not concerned with pleasing God. They're concerned with impressing people. They're not concerned with praising God and helping others to praise God. They're concerned with helping others to praise them. That's what's motivating them. That's where their hypocrisy lies. What does Jesus say is the end result of the hypocrite's prayer? Look again there at verse 5 at the end. He says, truly, verily. I think he says this because it it might surprise his hearers. And and it is going to surprise them because the hypocrites refer to the scribes and Pharisees. So this is going to be a shocking truth about these men. Truly, I say to you, they, the hypocrites, they have received their reward. Jesus says they've gotten what they wanted. They were not praying for God to hear them. They were praying for people to hear them. They were not praying for God's approval and pleasure. They were praying to impress others. They were not praying for people to say, what a great God. They were praying for people to hear and say, what a great prayer. And as soon as that person said that or even thought it, Jesus says, they got their reward in full. That's what they were after, and they got it. They sought nothing more than that, and what's implied here is that they will receive nothing more than that from God. They sought man's praise, they got it. They didn't seek God's praise, and so there's nothing there for God to give them. They've got their reward in full, and they will get nothing else because it was not to God that they were praying. So that's the the negative example of how Jesus tells us not to pray. But then he, he shifts in verse six. Notice there he says, but, he's gonna make a contrast now and give positive instruction, but when you, my disciples, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. So Jesus says, when, when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door. Get away from the public space. Get away from the eye of people, the ears of people who can see your posture and and see you and, and hear your prayers. It's interesting. Go into the place, your inner room, a private space, where really there's only two people present. You and God. You and your Father in heaven. And then he says, and pray to your father who is in secret. Get alone with God and address your prayers to God. Don't address them to Mary. Don't address them to angels. Don't address them to the heavenly host. That sounds bizarre. I have heard well-meaning brothers say, he's addressed the heavenly host in prayer. And I just, I think what he means is he's addressing the triune God, but he doesn't realize actually heavenly host refers to the armies in heaven, the angelic hosts. He's, he's addressing them, but as we'll see here in a moment, actually, thankfully, I think God knows his heart. But address your prayers to God. Now, 
I want to be careful here. Jesus, I don't believe Jesus is prohibiting all public forms of prayer. So Rion was not in sin. He was not in disobedience to stand up here and lead us in corporate prayer just a few minutes ago. We who were gathered in that room over there about an hour ago now were not in sin when we gathered together and prayed in the presence of, of one another and for each other. That's not what Jesus is saying. What his focus is not on whether there's people present or not. His primary concern is what is motivating our heart. Whether we're praying in private, we're praying publicly with other people. What are we really after? What's motivating our prayers? What's behind that? And he wants us to be focused primarily on God. He wants us to be concerned with talking to God, not with talking so much to each other. And that can come in very subtle forms. I find this very difficult um, when I pray in the presence of others, whether as Rian did or even as a group, as we did earlier, even in my own family, just with my wife and I. I find it very tempting sometimes to pray to my wife or to pray to someone else. Let me, let me um, give you a couple examples of, of what I mean. Um, maybe you've experienced this before. You've heard it awkwardly or maybe you've done it Let's say you're in a circle, you're praying with, with some people, and, uh, and someone's really praying for, say, their, their sick aunt to be healed. I mean, she's just deadly sick, and this person is just confident in prayer. And they're even thanking God for the healing ahead of time that God is, is going to perform on their aunt. And as you hear that, you start to maybe go, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I, I want her aunt to be healed also. And I believe God can do that, but what about the sovereignty of God, right? I mean, and so you listen to the prayer and then, you know, you, you maybe have a few options, right? One option is you may not say amen to it because you feel uncomfortable with, with what was said. Uh, the other option, I've done this, is you may say amen to it um, and in your, your own mind, you say, Lord, you know what parts I was agreeing with and what parts I wasn't. <laughs> I've done that. Um, or what you can do is you can, after the person's done, you can use prayer as an opportunity to do something like this. You can say, Father, I just want to follow up on that, and, and I want to pray um, for her aunt that you would heal her if it's your will, and you just interject the sovereignty of God in there as a loving, gentle corrective for your sister who's just been praying. You see what you've just done? You've not actually been praying to God. You've, you've hijacked prayer to God as a back road way for you to gently nudge your sister and say, I'm not sure I agree with your theology when it comes to God and healing. That's not what prayer is for. Um... Sometimes, too, we can do this when we're praying in a group, especially a group that we, we don't know very well or we have something burdening our hearts that we, we are mindful that others aren't familiar with, maybe the person or the circumstances, and we might do something like this. We might say, God, I just want to pray tonight for my neighbor. Uh, you know the one who lives in the brick house at number 19. You know, he drives the blue van to work every day. <laughs> And you start listing out all these details about the person. And you ever asked yourself, why are you doing that? It's not for God's sake. God knows all these things. You're doing that for the sake of the others, right? 
And that's not essentially wrong, but again, you see what we're doing is we're, we should be praying to God about this, and actually we're talking to the people around us. And again, that can be very subtle, and, and I'm not even sure that that's the heart of what Jesus is, is after here. The heart of what Jesus is after is when we pray in a way that tries to show off to people. That's really the, the main focus here. Prayer is not to be about showing off how spiritual we are, how spiritual we think we are, how much theological knowledge we have in our heads, how much scripture we've memorized and can, can quote you know, in the moment in prayer, using grand, lofty, impressive words, again, so that people would, would praise you. Or sometimes, I've been guilty of this, um, praying about something in a group and, and acting like you're actually really burdened about it in that moment, you really care about it, when that's the first time you prayed about it in like three months, and you're just acting burdened about it because it impacts the other person there and you've just kind of remembered it after all this time. You give off this impression that, wow, he must be really praying quite regularly for this, he must be burdening him, and, and, but you know honestly before the Lord, that's just not the case. You're trying to give off an impression to people of one thing when it's, it's actually not who you are in private or really the heartfelt burden inside you. Jesus is saying, don't do that. And he's actually trying, like I said, to encourage us. He's trying to tell us, when you pray, just communicate directly with God. Just do that. Speak to God, and when you speak to him, just speak sincerely from the heart. That's all. Just be honest about what's burdening your heart, whatever that is. And just bring that to God in simple communication. Talk to him about the things that are really important to you, the things that you really care about, and you care enough about to talk to God about them because you just want to maybe share that with him or you want to ask him to do something about it. Whatever the reason is, whatever you feel strongly and passionately about, bring it to God in prayer. Be encouraged. Prayer is not meant to be this complex thing, this grandiose religious act in order to impress others. You know, oftentimes when you pray, when we pray in groups, a lot of people don't pray because we compare ourselves to one another. And when someone leads out, I appreciated what you said earlier in, in the corporate prayer. I think you said something like, um, you don't have to pray. If you want to pray, pray. And you don't have to pray long prayers. You can just be brief and, and simple and to the point. I appreciate that. Um, because it can be quite intimidating when someone leads out, even after the leader has said that, you know, almost kind of beg the people just to be simple and, and brief, and someone leads out for like seven minutes, and you've only got about 20 minutes to pray, seven minutes of prayer, and they're just using all these big theological words, and they're going on and on and on, and after they finish, you just kind of all sit there, and if you could open your eyes, you might look at each other and just kind of what do we do now? <laughs> I, can't, I can't follow that up. You know, I can't pray like that. You've, actually, you've covered all the things on the prayer list. There's nothing left to pray for. Let's, I guess we should just say amen. Thanks, brother, for leading us in prayer. Um, now, technically, if you're tracking with me and with Jesus here, you might go, ah, but you're not even supposed to be thinking that way in the first place. You'd be right. You'd be right. 
But I just wanted to highlight sometimes even the negative impact our hypocrisy can have on others. It can actually discourage them in prayer. And when we start to be concerned about what others think of us, then we start to listen to other people's prayers, we start to compare ourselves to them, and we actually start to get quite discouraged and we won't pray in public or with other people because of a fear of man. That's really what's at the root. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to raise an eyebrow, even though I shouldn't see whether an eyebrow has been raised because everyone's eyes are closed. (laughs) I don't want someone to come up to me afterwards and ask me about that thing I said, like praying to the heavenly host, you know. (laughs) By the way, I haven't talked to that brother about it, so I just just share it publicly with everyone else. So Um, maybe I should, you know. Yeah, maybe I should. Um... Yeah, don't be concerned about what others think when you pray. Now, again, please hear me here. It matters. The content of our prayers do matter, okay? We, we shouldn't get into a habit or, be, or, or encourage one another to say false and untrue things to God in prayer. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't really build you up. That's not helpful in the long term, um, so it matters what we say in prayer, but Jesus' focus here is not on the content so much, but it's, it's on the motivation, on the, on the heart behind it. He wants you to know that if you're a believer in him, you're a follower of him, when you pray to God, you're praying to your father. And in the same way that a father delights in the communication of his child to him, God delights when you come to him and just honestly open your heart to him and speak. Um, we, we're staying at it. Airbnb in the area here overnight and we got into the place and Abigail our daughter is is about three now so she's at a stage where she would get really excited about a new place so we get into this place and she's just scampering around and and is this my room is this which one is my room and we finally tell her this is your room and and she gets so excited daddy daddy this is my room look at my room look at my room and she's bouncing on her knees on the bed and and Yes, you see, she's just excited and she just wants to share that with me. It's just the overflow of how excited she is. And she just wants to tell me about that. Now, what would you think if I I said or you heard that, you know, actually what she said was, Daddy, Daddy, look at my broom, look at my broom. You know, kids are very apt to mispronounce words, add an extra letter sometimes. And and I looked at her with a, a stern face and I said, no, 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 it's not a broom, it's a room. What's wrong with you? It's a room. Said, What's wrong with you, Dad? <laughs> you know? God's not like that. He's not just waiting for you to mispronounce something or say the wrong word or stutter or stammer in prayer or to struggle to get something out and then just to berate you and publicly shame and expose you. He delights to have you come into his presence and just to communicate with him. With all your stammering, with all your struggle, with all your difficulty, even when you don't know what to say or how to pray, He's given you his spirit because even then he wants his spirit to communicate through you to him in ways that are too deep for you to even give word to. So when you go to God in prayer, know that you're just, you're to go and simply communicate to your father in heaven. That was round one. Let's look at round two. Again, how not to pray, round two. Look at, verses, look at verse 7 there. 
Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So here now Jesus says, do not pray like the Gentiles. First, do not pray like the hypocrites. Now do not pray like the Gentiles. Gentiles here refers to non-Jews. In our day, we might apply that and say like unbelievers, those who are ignorant of and who don't know God. He says there's a certain way that Gentiles are in the habit of praying. There's something they do, they tend to do regularly in prayer that he does not want us to imitate when we go to God in prayer. What is it that Gentiles were doing when they prayed to their God or their gods? Notice again there in verse 7, he says, they heap up empty phrases. That's a translation of of one Greek word, batalogeto, which just means repeating yourself over and over and over and over and over, and oh, you get the picture, (laughs) and over again, okay? It's clarified by the phrase there at the end of verse 7, that they think they will be heard for their many words. So heap up empty phrases, many words. So the Gentiles were in the habit of heaping up words, multiplying, repeating the same phrases, the same ideas, the same words over and over and over again to their gods. Now, Why did they do that? Why did they get into that habit and practice? Look again at verse seven, he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for, because, here's why they do it, they think that they will be heard for or on account of their many words. Understand what Jesus is saying. In the minds of the Gentiles, the pagans at that time, They believed that the way to ensure that their God heard them, that they could get the attention of their God, and perhaps also to ensure that their God would be inclined to give them what they were asking for, they thought the way to that was to repeat, to increasingly multiply their words again and again and again. We see an illustration of this in the Old Testament. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, the showdown between the prophet Elijah and the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, Elijah wants to confront the idolatry in Israel at the time, so he says, showdown. Gathers all the false prophets of Baal, says, all of you and me, we're going to have a contest on top of Mount Carmel. We're both going to set up altars and sacrifices. We're going to call out to our gods. You call out to Baal, I'll call out to Yahweh, and whoever answers is the true and living God. Wow, I felt like wanting to do that at times with unbelievers, you know, just to kind of challenge them and and, uh, believe that God would show up. I've just never felt bold enough to actually do it. But what what a, just he throws the gauntlet down. And so they meet. And so the prophets of Baal build their altar. They put on their sacrifice and they start calling out to their God, Baal, and nothing, just crickets, nothing. And Elijah, he knows how the pagans think about their God and how they relate to their gods in prayer. And so he actually uh, 
in a sarcastic way, but in a way I think that he probably knew they might take him up on it to embarrass them publicly. He says to them, uh, what's wrong? Perhaps your God is on holiday, giving you kind of the modern paraphrase translation. Perhaps your God's on holiday. Or then he gets a bit cruder and says, perhaps your God is on the toilet. It's actually what he says, the privy pot. So he says, you know what you need to do is you just need to get more excited. You just need to shout louder and really get his attention. Now, if you heard that, you might just think, wow, this guy's just totally tearing them down. They'll never do that. You know what they do? They go, oh, great idea. Of course. Why didn't we think of that? It's exactly how they thought about their gods. And so Elijah played right into that. And so what do they start doing? They start cutting themselves and leaping around the altar and shouting out over and over for hour after hour after, oh, ball, hear us, oh, ball, answer us, and still, crickets, crickets. See, this is how the Gentiles, the pagans, related to and communicated, thought about their gods in prayer. They were so distant that we had to just repeat the same mantra over and over again to get their attention. And then even once we got their attention, they were not inclined to give us what we wanted. And so by multiplying and heaping up phrases, we had to kind of twist their arm until they said uncle and finally gave us what we were asking for. That's how they thought about and related to their gods. And you see modern examples of this kind of mindless repetition in prayer nowadays as well. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church very regularly repeating what they called not the Lord's Prayer, but the Our Father, after the first two words, and the Hail Mary. You get the rosary around your wrist, and you do Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, and you hit the one bead, and it's Our Father, and it's Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail You just get in the habit of repeating these words, even words of Scripture at times, just totally mindlessly thinking that by doing these, I'm gaining, I'm garnering some kind of grace and favor with God. And you see it also in Islam and Judaism. Muslims and Jews have these daily prayers and these prayer books. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have scripted prayers, essentially, but they get into this rote habit of praying the same things over and over and over again. And they're speaking the words, but their hearts are not there. And they think that if I just make sure to do morning, afternoon, evening prayer, then God will hear me. God will give me what I'm asking based on my performance in prayer. And Jesus says, don't, don't pray that way. Again, I want to be careful. He's not saying that there won't be times when in God's wisdom and in his sovereign plan, we may not, we will be, we will be required to actually persevere in praying for something or someone for a long time. And so it's going to take praying sometimes the same things over and over and over again. You've probably experienced that where you're, just, you're praying one thing for one person and you've been praying for them so long that oftentimes you end up just saying sometimes just the same thing over and over again. That in and of itself is not essentially wrong. Jesus taught us we need to prevail with God in prayer and we need to persevere in prayer and keep praying for the same thing sometimes when God tells us to wait on something because there's something he wants to teach us. He wants to grow us even in that experience of waiting and persevering. That's not the focus. The focus here is on thinking that when you come to God in prayer, you're coming to a God that's very distant and can't hear you, and that you're coming to a God in prayer who even when he does hear you, he doesn't delight to give you the good things you ask for. 
He says, no, that's how the pagans think about their gods. That's not how you're to think about your father in heaven. Notice how he shifts, or how he describes, excuse me, our father in heaven in verse eight. He says, do not be like them for, here's the reason, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So if you thought earlier I was saying theology doesn't matter, it matters. What you believe about God impacts how you relate to God in prayer. Jesus wants to teach us that our Father in heaven is not a God of ignorance, not a God who's blind. He is a God who sees and a God who knows. He knows what we need. And this makes a massive difference for how we relate to him in prayer. Later in chapter 6, he'll say, Because the Gentiles don't have a God who knows their needs and is committed to meet them, they are anxious and fearful and they seek eagerly after all the things in this world. But he says, you don't have to do that. Because God knows that you have need of these things and because he's committed to give you these things that you need, you can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and just trust him to provide for you what you need when you need it. Maybe not what you asked for, Maybe not when you believed you needed it, but what he knew in his infinite wisdom and love you needed when you needed it. You can trust him with that. God not only knows what we need, but he's inclined to actually give us what we need. Later in chapter 7, Jesus will give further instruction on prayer and say, um, ask, seek, knock. Why? Because if you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, it will be opened to you. It's interesting how he, he reasons. You know, he, he's trying to motivate us. Ask, why? Because if you ask, you're going to get what you ask for. Knock, why? Because it's going to be opened. Seek, why? Because you're going to find. You won't be disappointed when you go to God in prayer. And then he makes a comparison. He says, which of you, fathers, earthly fathers, being wicked, which of you, if your child asks you for a loaf of bread, will give them a stone? Of course, the answer is no one would. Not even wicked earthly fathers would do that. Or if he asked you for a fish, you'd give him a snake. Or if he asked you for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion. If they asked you for a good thing, you'd give them something that actually would harm them or that would be useful to them or that would mock them. You wouldn't do that. And then he says, if that's true, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask for them? It's an argument from the lesser to the, to the greater. He wants us to know that our Father is more inclined to give us good things than sadly we're often inclined to ask him for. But he wants us, as the psalmist says, to open our mouths wide that he might fill it. It's very providential that you read Matthew 14. I say that because I've, I've thought about, um, in light of this, this promise 
Jesus, in the Gospel of John, in the upper room, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask God in my name, he'll give it to you. It's like a big blanket promise. Have you ever wondered, like, why does he say that? Because we know there's times when we ask for things and he doesn't give it to us. What is he really trying to do with those words? And I've been helped, my father-in-law put me onto this line of thought, by the way Herod speaks to Herodias' daughter when she dances. You remember, she came out, she danced, she pleased the king, it was his birthday, and so the king says to her, as a reward for her dance, ask whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. That's Matthew's rendition. In Mark, he adds that, that King Herod said, even up to half of my kingdom, and it's yours. Now, do you think he literally meant that? Like, if Herodias heard that, and then she said, hmm, funny thing you, you say that, king, dad, because just the other day I was talking with my friends, and I thought it would be so cool to rule half your kingdom. So that's what I want. How do you want to divide it, north-south or east-west? I don't think he literally meant that. Now, if he didn't literally mean that, why did he say it? I think for two reasons. One, he wanted to remember who was there in his presence, all the high-ranking, powerful people at his banquet table. He wanted in front of them to make a promise to this girl to communicate two things. One, he is a man of great power and authority. Whatever she asks for, he has the ability to give it to her if he wants to. He can give it to her just like that. And second, he's a man of great wealth and great generosity. He's not stingy with his wealth. He has great wealth and he delights to give it. He wants to show he's a generous man, even up to half of my kingdom if that's what you want. He's trying to encourage her. Don't ask for a piddly thing. Don't think I'm a stingy king. Don't be afraid to ask me for big things. And that's what I think Jesus wants us to get here. When you go to God in prayer, you're going to, as he says here in verse nine, right? He says, God already knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, verse nine, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. I love those two things side by side. Our Father in heaven. In heaven, our Father, you're going to a God who loves you, who delights in you, who knows what you have need of even before you ask him. And you realize that as you sit here tonight? There may be things burdening your hearts. There may be things going on in your marriage, in your family, um, even just in the deep recesses of your own heart that you just don't feel comfortable even sharing with anyone else. Perhaps you're ashamed of it, you're embarrassed by it, it's just burdening you, whatever the reason is. And so you keep it to yourself, which probably isn't, by the way, the wise thing to do, but you do that nevertheless. And what you end up feeling is you you feel tempted then to think, no one can understand what I'm going through. Part of the reason is because you won't tell anyone what you're going through, but nevertheless, you you feel that. It's a real experience. No one knows what I'm going through. Not even your spouse, perhaps. Your closest companion knows what you're going through. The people in this church, your pastor. But even if no one else knows what you're going through, God knows. 
He knows. He knows what happens in private. He knows what's going on in your mind, in your heart, the pain, the anguish, the difficulty, the sorrow, whatever it is, he knows. Maybe it's, you've been backsliding. It's, the, you know, it's something actually not good. And, and you feel like, because of that, I just, I can't actually draw near to God. Maybe you feel restrained, even as you're here tonight. As Rian was praying, you felt like, I can't actually participate in this prayer. As we were singing, you thought, I don't even want to say the words because my heart isn't in it. I would be a hypocrite to pray because you've been maybe sliding away from the Lord and, and drifting. But God knows that. And I'm not saying that's okay, but don't let that cause you to run away from God. Run to him with that. Because if you're a believer in his son, you're his child, you're his son or daughter. He knows. Don't act like you can hide it from him and run from him. He knows. Just be open with him about it. Be honest. Receive that love and forgiveness again and restore that, that fellowship, that openness with him to be able to just speak your heart honestly with him again. After all, your acceptance before him was never based upon your performance in the first place. It was based upon the perfect work of Christ that you're trusting in. So don't mix those things up. He delights in you for Christ's sake. He accepts you as a son or daughter. He invites you. What a great privilege and joy to come into his presence and unburden his heart. And what I love about our Father in heaven is that you don't just have this childlike access, this childlike freedom and confidence in his presence to say, Abba, Father, and to tell him what's on your heart. But you can have this confidence also that he's an almighty God who reigns in heaven. He's your father, but he's not, and he's not just your father who knows and who cares, but who's impotent to do anything about it. He is the Lord God, the Almighty. The creator of heaven and earth is your father. The one who controls all things and has all power to do anything he wants. Nothing is too difficult for him. That is the one you're coming to. So ask for big things from this God. Expect great things from him. The one who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, even more than you can ask or think. Once when my, my father-in-law, when he was young, he told me his uncle took him to a store and uh, said to him when they walked into this big store, he said, you can have one thing, just pick out one thing, I'll buy it for you, but you can have anything in the store, anything in the store. It was just big kind of like department type store, I think. One thing, anything, and you can have it. He said he didn't know like what to do with that, you know? Like, really? You know? And he's looking and he's looking at some things and you know, you just, you see these big high-priced items and then you think, surely he didn't mean that. You know, <laughs> he didn't mean that. And so he walked out with, I forget what it was, but quite a small kind of trinket thing. And it's kind of like in the, in the end, he looks back and kind of kicks himself thinking, maybe I should ask for like a really big thing, you know? His uncle had the ability to buy anything in that store. And so when he made that offer to him, he wasn't just messing with him. And in the same way, when you go to God in prayer, you're going to an almighty God who could do anything he wants. And so ask for big things confidently knowing that if he's willing, he's able to do it. As I said already, what a privilege it is to have this kind of relationship with God as your father, right? To be able to have this access, this confidence, this freedom with God in prayer. Don't waste that. 
Make the most of that privilege and that access. Because you know it came at a great cost. Not to you, but, but to God and to Jesus. Right? You and I have that access because of Jesus. The Apostle John tells us, to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right. We didn't have that right outside of Christ. He gave them the right to be called the children of God. You're a child of God because of Jesus and because he was willing to go to the cross and to bear the wrath of God for your sins. That's amazing when you think about this father-son relationship. The one who forever, before the foundation of the world, was the delight of the father. The one in whom God said, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Jesus, you'll notice when he prayed, he prayed very uniquely compared to Jews at that time. He would address God in prayer often and say, my father, my father. He had this intimate relationship with him and yet at the end of his life when he hung on that cross, it's interesting what he cries. Not my father, my father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sinclair Ferguson pointed that out and I thought, yes, Something's happening there on the cross where Jesus is not relating to God as his father in that moment, but as his judge because he's bearing your sin and my sin upon himself in the wrath of God for our sins. And he is cast off from God. He's rejected by God. He's condemned by God that we might be accepted and welcomed. Maybe you sing this him here, his robes for mine, his robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He as though I, accused and left alone, I as though him, embraced and welcomed home. What a privilege we have to come to God as our Father, who hears us, who knows us, who sees us, even in secret, who's committed to our good and who has all the power in the world to bring it about. And I just want to say in light of that, um, for those of you who are here but don't actually know God in this way, I actually pity you when I think about this. Now it's true, I was talking with Jason about this earlier, you know, God, he does not promise in the Bible, at least where, where I know of, he does not promise to hear the prayers of the wicked, to hear the prayers of unbelievers. He doesn't promise that. Now, sometimes he will do that just out of his sheer mercy and kindness. Jason was telling me how when he was in utter rebellion, he would pray to God and God still answered his prayers. And the kindness of God led him to repentance. God will do that sometimes if he wants to but he doesn't promise to. There's no guarantee because there's no covenant relationship between you and God if you're outside of Christ. Yes, God has made you. He cares about you in a general way. He wants your well-being, but he's not bonded to you as your father. You have no father-son, father-daughter relationship with him in covenant where he's committed to you in the way we've heard about tonight. And if that's you, I just plead with you to repent of your sins, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and God will adopt you into his family 
He will enter into this covenant, this familial covenant of love with you and become this God that you've heard of tonight in your life and in your prayer life. Amen.